You can, if you have your Bibles, you can actually turn with me in them to John 12. Not 1 John, but John 12. Uh, the roots of 1 John. Last time we were together, we were considering the first four verses of 1 John. And in those verses, we asked questions about the nature of John's epistle and its purpose. Questions which we will expect to have answered as we continue through the text. But there were some concepts about which we walked away confident. I gave you three concepts at the end there, kind of summary concepts uh, that we walked away with. Those concepts were first, eternal life is not the same as Afterlife. The scriptures inform us that the concept of eternal life is much more broad than simply the doctrines of the resurrection or the doctrine of heaven. That we can have and live in and thrive in eternal life today. That when Jesus speaks of eternal life and the apostles speak of, of eternal life, they are not just speaking of the afterlife. They are not just speaking of the resurrection. They are not just speaking of heaven, but they are speaking of a newness of life, buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. And that newness of life is, in fact, eternal life as the Bible presents it. Then secondly, eternal life is something which the believer can experience today. Of course, that's the natural, um, the natural point that flows from that. John's initial statement makes it clear that this eternal life of which he speaks is something that is ours for today, something that is ours to have, to seek unto, and to live in. And then third, joy is the evidence of eternal life, that the natural outworking of living in eternal life on a daily basis, of, of living in that not, not that, not just that we are saved, the natural outworking of being saved is not joy, the natural outworking of the Spirit of God working in you as one who is saved is where joy comes in. So you can know the extent to which you're tapping into this life which has been purchased for you through the evidence that is joy. But there were two problems with last week's message. Actually, there were a lot more than two problems, I'm sure, but two that I want to fix this week. First, well, not just this week, this week and next week. First, we kept going back to John to express the ideas in 1 John. And that's by design of the writer who wrote both the Gospel of John and the Epistle of 1 John. So I'm referencing John extensively, and we will reference John extensively, but I haven't really oriented you to that context, and I want to fix that this week. I want to take you back to John this week, and I want to walk you through what I believe is the foundation, the very root of that tree that we will be considering in 1 John. And the second problem is that I keep using this term, joy. In fact, we've rooted the very purpose and the essence of the epistle in the outworking of said joy, but we haven't actually discussed what joy is. Is And I hope to remedy both of these deficiencies in the next couple of weeks. So I mentioned in my, first, in my book sermon, that first sermon a couple of weeks ago, that I believe the first epistle of John to be a sort of expansion. Uh, maybe we might even consider it, in a sense, uh, a, a commentary of sorts upon Jesus' teachings to his disciples regarding the nature of their lives following Jesus' death burial and resurrection. And that's not the only time that we see such a thing. Uh, James is very similar in many ways to the Sermon on the Mount. So we might understand James to be a, a expansion on or an elaboration upon the concepts that Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is something that we see in various epistles at various times. And I believe we find it here in 1 John. In this, we find the first truly comprehensive teaching of what the life of a New Testament believer is supposed to look like in John in the Gospel of John, particularly chapters 13 through 17, 
And as I said, that record begins in chapter 13. Prior to that, prior to chapter 13, John's theme was light and darkness, belief and unbelief, and everything about chapters 1 through 12 particularly, and then it does pick up again toward the end as we, as we consider the crucifixion, is very much geared toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, toward belief and unbelief, toward light and darkness, that, that there are two ways. There is either Christ's way or there is anything else other than Christ's way. And so we pick up then in John 13 with a very different context, and that context is the upper room during the Passover prior to the, the, Jesus' betrayal and, and then crucifixion. Now, all the way to John 12, we saw belief and unbelief. So that the end of John 12 says this, John 12, verses 44 to 46. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. So we see this toward the end of John 12. Jesus is still speaking about darkness and light, still speaking about belief and unbelief. The unquestioning theme of the book, especially up until chapter 12. But in chapter 13, Jesus is alone with the twelve the night in which he was betrayed, to eat the Passover with them, then to go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And this record of the Passover begins in John 13. Notice what we then read. Beginning in John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended... The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now what we observe here is a pretty sizable shift in the tone of the book of John. As Jesus now directs his attention fully toward those who are already his, right? He's thinking toward those that are his. He loves those that are his, and he would love them unto the end. Those who God had given to him out of the world, right? And we see in that concept a thematic shift from Jesus reaching out to the world that is around him and and the, the theme being belief and unbelief, light and darkness, to now Jesus reaching out to his own and preparing them for his imminent departure. And what he directs their thoughts unto, the very thing of which we spoke in our message a couple of weeks ago on liberty, is that a relationship with Christ frees our consciences to turn the focus off of ourselves and invest our focus into others. That when we are a follower of Jesus Christ, because we have been freed from the guilt and the shame of our sin, 
because we have been freed from that weight that lays, uh, that rests upon the conscience of men, we are then made free to do something else, to take our minds off of ourselves. I don't, I don't have to work my way to God. I don't have to, to work to be pleasing in his sight. Jesus does that work for me. He did that work for me, which means I can then serve him freely. And what do I do with that? Well, I love one another. That's exactly what Jesus shows here as he washes the disciples' feet. He tells them that he has done so as an example that they should do to others as he has done to them. Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all that is, knelt down and washed the feet of the disciples as a means by which to set an example so that when he says, follow me, so that he says, do as I command. So as he says, as, as he says um, uh, uh, follow my example. This is what he wants of us. He's making that very, very clear. And Jesus summarizes this well in John 13, 34. A verse which is going to factor heavily into our teaching in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. So in um, 1 John 13, verse 34... The Bible says this, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now notice what 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 says. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. And John would go on to say that this new commandment is to love the brethren. And of course, this is the essence of what the washing of feet symbolizes. A determination to love one another as Christ has loved us. A new commandment built upon an old commandment. The old commandment, the one in, in, in that, that uh, is undergirded in the Old Testament is the first and great commandment, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. And the second like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. This is what you boil the Ten Commandments down to, right? The first five commandments are love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. The second five commandments are love thy neighbor as thyself. And so we see this essence. And I apologize. I just realized that when I was reading um, from John 13, I did skip uh, from verse 5 to verse 12, and I didn't tell you that. It was on the screen, but I, I skipped without telling you. So my apologies for not, uh, um, if you were following along in your Bible, I'm sure you were a bit confused there for a sec. But um, I, did, I did a little skipping there. Um, so we see this idea. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. This new commandment. And that's what we are introduced to in John 13. Love one another. Wash each other's feet, symbolically representing the concept of deferring one to another. Jesus then continues in John 14, which begins with a very, very well-known promise. It also reminds us exactly who it is Jesus is speaking to here. Not unbelievers, but those who have chosen to follow him. So Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. 
So no question about what is happening in these chapters. Jesus is preparing his followers for his departure. First, instructing them on their new commission, which is to love one another as Christ has loved them. That's John 13. Second, laying down the promises and the expectations which would accompany his departure. First, that after he goes away, he will come again and receive them unto himself. Second, the promise of a great comforter called the Holy Spirit of God. That when Jesus departs, he would not leave them comfortless, but that he would send one to comfort them, to aid them, to enable them, and to teach them in his absence. And this becomes very, very important, not just to Jesus' teaching in, in the Gospel of John, but to 1 John. So we read in John chapter 14, verses 23 through 26, Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now we take note, first of all, verse 26, the promise of the teaching of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is mirrored in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, where John writes, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. I trust you see the similarities here, and perhaps understand why I would regard First John as perhaps a sort of commentary on the discipleship portion of the Gospel of John, namely chapters 13 through 17. So then the command is to love the brethren. The promise and the power of this command is that the Holy Spirit of God will teach, will guide, and will empower believers, followers of Christ, to perform this commandment. That when Jesus leaves, he will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will indwell us and will guide us and will teach us and will empower us to do his will. Now, at the end of John 14, Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room and they begin walking to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they make this journey, we can perhaps imagine that they walked through vineyards on their way to, these, all, to Gethsemane, which was a, a, a olive orchard. Or even as Jesus references the olive trees themselves, perhaps, as he uses the picture of the vine and his branches, to express how it is that his disciples can interact with the Spirit of Christ to perform the great commandment of loving one another. First is the command. He washes the disciples' feet. He tells them, this is my commandment that you love one another. Then the promise. The promise is that he's coming again, that he's going to go away, but that he will come again. And in the meantime, he is going to send the comforter and the comforter is going to come and the comforter is going to empower them and is going to teach them and is going to enable them and is going to direct them in the way that they should go. And then he, they, they get up and they walk out of the upper room and they make their way toward Gethsemane. And as the, they do so on the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins talking to them about the vine and the branches. And we read about this in John 15, which not only functions as really the climax of Jesus' teaching in John, 
but as the foundational purpose of 1 John. So John 15, verses 1 through 14, I'll read a good chunk of scripture here. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples." As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends." If you do whatsoever I command you. So what have we seen? Jesus says, love one another. This is the great commandment. A new commandment I give unto you. And he expresses that through the symbolic gesture of washing the feet of his disciples. Then he says, I'm going to go away. And you need to know that I'm going away. But I'm coming back and I will come back for you. But in the meantime, I'm sending the spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God comes, He will teach you, He will empower you, He will enable you, He will direct you. And then they begin walking through these vineyards, and He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You must abide in Me, telling us how it is that the Spirit of God will bring about His work in our lives, that as we stay connected to the vine, for without Him we can do nothing, as we stay connected to the vine then the nutrients that come from the vine into the branches are able to flow and that that flow is in fact the means by which that we tap into, we walk in the Spirit of God and thus bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as Galatians 5 talks about, verses 22 and 23. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And of course, the second one there was what? Joy. And Jesus says that he has done all of these things. He has called us unto this way of living specifically for this reason that your joy might be full. So then when John writes in 1 John and he says, I write these things that your joy may be full, there's very little question about what John is doing here. There's very little question about where he's going with this. He's going to explain to us what Jesus was talking about in John, chapters 13 through 17. He's going to help us understand better what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, what it looks like to abide in the vine. And this abiding happens, Jesus says, and John will say very clearly, as we obey, as we follow Christ unto the end that we love the brethren and abound in righteousness. But then, and, and, and that being emphasized in verse 11, 
These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Abiding in Christ by keeping his commandments through the power of the Holy Spirit unto the love of the brethren and fullness of joy. If that sounded familiar, that's because that's what I said two weeks ago in my book sermon that First John is about. The clearest evidence of abiding in Christ, the clearest evidence of walking in the Spirit, the clearest evidence that we have our righteousness, our rightness, excuse me, that we are right in relation to Christ is that we keep His commandments and we experience fullness of joy. Jesus has given us John 13 verse seven, uh, through 17, a record of him teaching, we would say the 12, but Judas was not there for most of it. So his 11 most intimate disciples that we might know the commands, the power, and the evidences of following him. And the parallels to 1 John are, to say the least, striking. Driving all the way down to John's stated purpose, we said last week in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Now, if there's any doubt of what John is writing in the epistle of John, if there's any doubt that what he writes in the epistle of 1 John, excuse me, is for believers, I think that our study in John should really settle that question. Is John writing about how to be saved? Is John warning about what, uh, what it might look like to lose your salvation? Well, we've already dismissed those things for various reasons, but I'd say this is the strongest one, that when Jesus is, is relating these things, he is not relating them to a group of unbelievers. He is not relating them to uh, just a random people that are following him. He is relating these things to people who have already explicitly chosen to follow him, who Jesus has already said, these are the ones that God has given him out of this world. And then he is pouring into them this teaching. And this teaching is directly parallel to what we're going to see in 1 John. So 1 John is not talking to unbelievers about how to be saved. It's not warning unbelievers per se. It's teaching unbelievers. I mean, excuse me, it's teaching believers. It's teaching believers what it means to abide. See, because there's a difference between accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and living in eternal life. There are a lot of people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior but then they are living stunted in their growth. They are living in a spiritual holding pattern. They're not actually growing. They're not actually abounding. They're not actually experiencing what the Bible says a believer is supposed to experience. And lots of them synthesize it. They synthesize it through emotional feelings and through conjuring these things up in their lives. They synthesize it, um, especially on Sundays, right? Then we'll clean ourselves up and we'll come here and put a smile on our face to make everyone think everything's okay. But are we actually experiencing what Jesus said a believer's supposed to experience? That's what John 13 through 17 is supposed to teach us. That's what 1 John is all about. Are we living in fullness of joy? Pastor, what is joy? We'll get there next week. So Jesus gave us these commands in John 15 in order that our joy might be full. John wrote the epistle of 1 John for that same reason and on that same basis. Now, John 16 speaks of his departure, and um, I was going to get there next week. I was actually going to incorporate John 16 into next week. But because I had so much reading here, I actually didn't 
add a whole lot of content. So now I'm debating whether I want to finish this sermon super duper early um, or whether I just want to give you John 16 here off the cuff, although I don't have all my notes there on my computer for that. Um, and I think I'm just going to give you John 16 off the cuff. And then, we'll, and then we'll hit John 17 and then we'll be done. And then next week I'll just be able to give you a little more of something else as it relates to joy. In John 16, Jesus says this then, and this is not going to be on slides, so you're just going to have to follow along in your Bibles here. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. So he says, I didn't need to tell you these things before because I was with you. But now that I'm leaving, I need to warn you and I need to tell you that things are going to be hard at times. That, you are go- that, that there are going to be people that are going to kill you and think that in killing you, they're going to do God's service. That life is not going to be cherry blossoms and roses just because you're a follower of me. As a matter of fact, somewhat to the opposite extent, you will be hated because of being a follower of me. And I'm telling you these things so that when bad times come, when you go through suffering and hard times and trials, when you have illness and when you have confusion and when you have persecution, you are not offended. That I, the idea there of offended meaning um, to, uh, to, to fall away, right? To stumble, to sin, to cause to mistrust or to disobey. And so he says, when those things happen to you, when those times come, remember that I told you they were going to come. And why is that so important? Because what that reminds us is that Christ is still there. He still loves us in the midst of that. He has not abandoned us in the midst of that, that he anticipated that, that that's a part of the plan. So he says in verse five, but now I go my way to him that sent me and none of you asketh me whither goest thou because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So he says here, it is actually a good thing that I go away because the thing that I'm sending in my place is so So important, so wonderful, so great. Everything that Jesus has said in chapters 13, 14, 15 has been predicated upon the reality that he is going to send the comforter to teach us and to empower us and to enable us. So he says, it's actually expedient that I go away that you might receive this comforter. And then he says, and when he is come, that would be the comforter, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness, of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So that is what the spirit of God will do in the world. And actually that's why the world hates. That's why that, that, that is the, the predicate for the world hating the follower of Christ is because when the spirit of God convinces them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, they see those who are followers of Christ and they say, it's these people that are the problem. Right? Verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me 
for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Verse 16, a little while and ye shall not see me. And again a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Now notice what he says here, and this is very important. Jesus says, a little while and you shall not see me. Well, that one makes sense, right? Because Jesus is about to die and then he'll be buried and then he'll raise again and then he'll teach for, for uh, another uh, 47 days and then he will ascend into heaven. But then he says, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Wait a minute. Now, the first thing that would run through my mind when I hear a little while and you shall see me is the second coming, right? A little while and you don't see me and then a little while and you shall see me, okay? So I'm not gonna see you anymore because you're gonna ascend into heaven and then I will see you again because you're coming again. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, a little while ye shall not see me and again a little while ye shall see me because I go to the Father. So what is Jesus saying here? How is it that we shall see him because he goes to the Father. First John chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to have to turn there <laughs> to, quote it, to quote it properly. I don't normally have to do this in my sermons. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our hands, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested unto us. And then he says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye may have fellowship with us, that you can have it too. Remember that? Remember we talked about that last week? That's what John is saying. He's saying we have this thing, we have seen this thing. And though, though you and I have never seen Jesus in the flesh, yet we can touch and taste and handle the things that are of the word of life, that very eternal life that is with the Father and that is manifest unto us. So then when Jesus says in John 16, verse 16, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. What is he saying there? That when I go to the Father, the Comforter will come and it is expedient to you that the Comforter will come and then you will see me again. The very essence of the word of life will be manifest again in the power of the Spirit of God. Verse 17. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he saith unto us a little while and ye shall not see me? And again, a little while and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father, right? They're asking the same question we would be asking, which I just explained to you. I guess I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 18. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. They had no idea what Jesus was saying here, which is somewhat of a common thing among the disciples of Jesus. Um, especially during his earthly ministry. Verse 19, now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and he said unto them, do ye inquire among yourselves? And um, <clears throat> excuse me, of that I said, a little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into Joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. 
And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day, notice this, in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Now let me ask you a question. In what time period of God's designed order, what we would call dispensations, is this verse a reality? In what age of the world, in what age of history is the age where verily, verily, he says unto us, whatsoever we ask in the Father's name, that we, that we will not ask Christ directly, but whatsoever we shall ask in the Father's name, he will give it to us. That's the church. That's this age. Jesus is not talking about his second coming. Jesus is talking about now. This is the time that he says will come when once again we will be sorrowful, but our sorrow will turn into joy because we will see him again, because his life will be manifested. And it will not just be manifested in front of our eyes. It will be manifested in our hearts. Unto what end? Fullness of joy. That's what he says here. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Verse 24 says. This joy that no man can take from us. I'm undercutting a little bit next week's message, but I'll, I'll have more content, I promise. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Verse 25. And these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name. I say not unto you, but I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me and have believed that I came from God. When is it that we go directly to the Father, we no longer have to go to the Son because the Father himself loves us and the Father himself loves us because we love his Son? That's the gospel, is it not? That we go to the Father in the name of the Son because the Father loves the Son and the Son loves us and we love the Son. Therefore, we have all authority to go boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need because we are in the Son and the Father loves the Son, which means the Father loves us. The Father himself loves us. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee by this we believe that thou camest forth. They, they, they are saying this, they're, 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 they're not quite there yet, but they're trying here. And so Jesus says in the last verse in John 16, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now this is what it tells us about joy, and this is what we're going to wrap up next week. And since we've done this this week, next week I'll be spending a little bit more time in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot to be said there in joy. I was just spending most of my time in John 16 next week. Now I'm doing it here. Jesus says that he's given all of this to us, not so that we would... In heaven, we'd remember all of these things, right? Because that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this time, this life now. And he's saying these things. He says, in order that 
When you are going through tribulation, you can be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. This is a very strange concept. And this gives us an understanding of what joy is. We'll see it more next week. But what is joy? How is it that Jesus can be talking about persecution and tribulation and joy in the same context? Because joy is not happiness. Happiness and joy are different things. Happiness is what we would describe as that thing which is conditioned upon circumstances. So that I go home tonight and I find some cookies hidden in the back of the cupboard and I'm now a happy person. But then I realize that I shouldn't eat those cookies, so I go to bed without those cookies, and now I'm not a happy person anymore. And those things happen circumstantially in any given moment of my day. But joy is something that abides above those circumstances because I know this thing. I know that the Father loves me because he loves the Son, and I love the Son, and the Son loves me, and the Son has given his life for me, and that doesn't change regardless of whether the cookies are there in the cabinet or not. And that doesn't change whether or not I'm being persecuted. And that doesn't change whether or not there's tribulation. And that doesn't change whether or not I get sick. And that doesn't change regardless of the choices that my children make or my parents make or my neighbor makes. None of that changes what Jesus has done for me. None of that changes who I am before the Father. None of that changes where I am going. None of that changes the capacity that I have to be used of God through His Spirit, to be taught of God through His Spirit, to be directed by God through His Spirit, which means nothing that actually matters has changed. And so I can have joy regardless of my circumstances. Sneak preview of next week. And then we get to John 17. And in John 17, we read a prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer, and I've still got time. I've been moving tonight. So I'm going to give you more of the prayer than I intended to give. But what I want you to see in John 17 is particularly found early in this prayer. So Jesus says, beginning in verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, to as many as thou hast given him. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to 1 John 2, 2 and talking about Jesus being the propitiation for the sins of the whole world and we'll discuss the idea of predestination and election and we'll reference this idea. But notice there this idea that Jesus has given eternal life to as many as God has given to him. Now, we just, in last week and into this week, we have detached the notion of eternal life simply from being saved right? And notice what verse 3 says. And this is life eternal. What is life eternal? What is this eternal life that he has given to those whom God has given to him? That they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Notice he does not say, and this is life eternal, that everyone will end up in heaven. That, that has it. Notice he doesn't say, and this is life eternal, the resurrection from the dead. Notice he doesn't say, and this is life eternal, the adoption of sons. He says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is eternal life. That is what God has ordained Christ to give to those who are his. If you are his, 
then it is ordained that you should have eternal life. Now, you're, we're all going to get it one day if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, of course, this message is not for you. The only part of this message that applies to you was John 16, where it says that the Spirit of God will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Because of sin, the, the uh, reality of sin, of sin because you believe not on him. Of righteousness, because Christ has ascended into the Father and we see him no more. And of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. And if we do not get right with Christ, we will join the prince of the world in that judgment. But the rest of this has been about the believer. And to those whom God has given to Christ, to those who are those who have followed him into, taken up his cross and followed him, it is for us to have eternal life. And what is that life? That we might know the only true God. And we might know him. Now, knowing him is a whole lot more than just believing in, on him. How do I know that? Well, because of what Paul says in Philippians 3. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. Paul says, I have set aside the things in this life, you don't have to do that to be saved, per se. But he says, it's not enough. I've got to know him. The fellowship of his suffering. Being made conformable unto his death. The crucified life. That's where joy is found. You know, a lot of Christians don't find joy because... They recognize Jesus Christ as their Savior. They recognize that he has died on the cross to save them from their sins and that because he has saved them from their sins, there's no way that they can earn their way to heaven. They know that. They recognize it. They've accepted it. They are in him. But then they say, I want me to. And the world, the flesh, and the devil convince us that that part of us that we don't want to give up, that part of us that is us, is the thing that's actually making us happy. Yeah, heaven, heaven's going to be happy, but on this earth, those are the things that make us happy. And this is, in part, the problem with an affluent and a luxurious society, right? If we were in Syria today, we, it might not be so hard for us to think about this in a different way. If we were um, uh, in, in, in uh, Egypt today, or if we were uh, in Iraq today, or Iran today, or if we were in Malaysia today, it might not be as hard for us to connect uh, to, to, to detach ourselves from the things of this world, right? But in the United States of America in 2022, it can be tough. But it's a lie that those are the things that are truly the center of our happiness. It's, it's, a, it's all a facade. And I think the very fact that we are where we are, is it, not individually, but as a broad church today, the very fact that we're still struggling so much with all of these very same things that the world is struggling with is a good testimony of the fact that we've lost a sense of John 13 through 17 in our churches. So Jesus says, God has ordained, the Father has ordained that I would Give eternal life to as many as he has given to me. And this is that life. Knowledge of the holy. 
knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The rest of the prayer is beautiful. Jesus prays, not just for his disciples that are there, but he prays for all of us. He says in verse nine, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me for thine they are. And all mine are thine and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, here it is again, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. Christ has not prayed that we would be compelled unto some monastic life where we have separated ourselves from interaction with the world around us. But much to the contrary, he has prayed that in the world we would be kept from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Notice verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. He says, I don't just pray for these, I pray for all who will believe through them. And you and I are a part of an unbroken chain of faith that goes all the way back to the Apostles' Doctrine. Someone told someone who 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 told you. By God's grace, you'll tell someone else who will tell someone else who will tell someone else. So that when Jesus says, I pray not just for these, but I pray for all of them, he means you too. He doesn't want you to come out of the world. He wants you to be kept from evil. He wants you to know him. He wants you to have life eternal. And that's what 1 John is about. That's what we're studying. So expect to see these things come up again as we're walking through 1 John. Because 1 John is just John 13 through 17 by another name in another, uh, to, to, to another elaborative degree. And so now we understand the roots of 1 John. And we find that 1 John is intricately connected to John chapters 13 through 17, climaxing with this desire and promise that Christ has shown us these things that his joy might remain in us and that our joy might be full. So then there's only that one more thing that we need to cover in order to kind of fix the problems from last week. We've talked about the foundation. Now you understand where 1 John comes from. Now you understand why it is we can have a measure of confidence that John is not talking here about getting saved. Now you can understand that what he's talking about is directed wholly toward believers, and we know that as we connect it to, to the Gospel of John. The final thing we have to do, and again, you got your sneak peek tonight, is what about joy? What is joy? 
And we need to know what joy is so that when we see it, we'll know it. If joy is to be that thing that will be manifested in us as we abide in him, as we walk in the spirit, well, then we ought to be looking for it. And if we're going to be looking for it, then we need to know what it is. But for today, may I encourage you. May I encourage you this way. We didn't read all of it. So I'm going to give you a little homework this week. Before we move on in 1 John, which we will technically do in two weeks, not, not next week, because next week we'll be talking joy. Would you take some time to at least once before two weeks from today? Nope, because that week is song and testimony night. Three weeks from today. Wow, you've got lots of time. Maybe even once a week. Maybe do it once a week. Read through John 13 through 17. Become familiar, very familiar with John 13 through 17. So that as we're walking through 1 John, you can see the echo of John 13 through 17 as we read through it together. So yeah, maybe do that. Maybe read through it once a week. Uh, if you get through it once in three weeks, that's fine too. But come to know what Jesus is promising so that when we get into those places in 1 John, perhaps we'll understand them just a little bit better. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.